playing guilty with Dr. Sean Pastuch of Active Life. Dr. Sean and I have ran in the same circle for for a few years now, um, and recently he made a post to LinkedIn that I would like to kick off this intro with. It goes something like this. I have a confession. I've been afraid to post on this platform in my real voice, so I haven't. I posted safe content, because what if one of you sees something I wrote, disagrees with, and decides you can't align your company with mine? That's the ridiculous thought that has gone through my head. What if you're the perfect employee, except you saw something I posted and found it off-putting, so you don't apply when I post a job? I've considered that too. What if you suggest me to a colleague of yours as someone they, sh- they should collaborate with, but they've heard I'm too loud, too outspoken, too opinionated, too independent, too to align with? Yeah, I've feared that. But here's the thing. I think it's much more than just me. I speak to you on the phone, and when we get into that setting, we make jokes, we laugh, we use words like bullshit, and we get things done without the fluff. I believe many of us are exhausted with the abundance of content on LinkedIn. Things like, I did an honorable thing today and learned a lesson from it that I wanted to share. I believe many of us play the game because we feel like we have to. We look for articles to share and ask for opinions when we really don't care what the opinions are. We just want it to reach our accounts, which is why there's very little disagreement in the content section. It's amazing. We all have such similar opinions. I believe many of us are uninspired by the overwhelming majority of content on this platform. And it's a well-kept secret right in the open. Everyone knows If you've laughed at the jokes made at the expense of the content on this platform made by our friends and the colleagues in a social setting, wearing casual clothes, or have smirked at the memes, poking fun at everything I wrote about, I see you. We are cut from the same cloth. So here is my pledge. From here forward, you will be getting me. Not the polished me, my opinions, my questions, my innovations, my mistakes, me. I don't care who you voted for or who you plan to vote for. You have your reasons. I respect you. I don't care how you identify. You have your reasons. I respect you. I don't care how much money you make. You have your reasons. I respect you. I care what your intentions are. The rest is just a matter of execution. Work with me. Don't work with me. I do care. I hope you choose to work with me. I hope you like me. I hope you believe in me. I hope you think what I am doing is valuable. I hope you feel my empathy. I am a human with similar human desires to you. I want to be wealthy. Wealth I want to be healthy, wealthy and free. I want strong relationships, strong purpose and strong drive. My business is an extension of our entire team. And they are an extension of me. If you like what you see, let's talk. You will never have to wonder what you're getting when I pick up the phone or turn on the Zoom screen. You're going to get me. As you can see, I'm extremely excited 
to interview Dr. Sean today. Dr. Sean, it's great to have you. Um, I've been looking forward to this interview, obviously, and um, we'll see how it goes. So thank you for your time today. It's going to go great. Um, I love your LinkedIn bio. Um, I think it reads, the gap between fitness and healthcare is larger than either fitness or healthcare. It's within, and it's within the mission of Active Life to bridge that gap. So can you, for the audience, can you start with, you know, Dr. Sean, the person, Active Life, the company, and we'll just kind of flow from there? Yeah, we can do whatever you want, man. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I'm a guy who had to learn the hard way that if I wanted to be good at business, I had to become a better person. And through me becoming a better person, personal development, personal revelation, whatever you want to call it, uh, I started to see the problems that other people and frankly, I was experiencing as a result of incomplete solutions that came from the fitness world and from the healthcare world. And then I was able to look around and see our society just decaying in front of us Mm -hmm. while there are over 2,000 times more gyms in the United States today than there were in the 1950s. We are fatter. We are sicker. We are more injured than we were back then by probably a similar margin. It's almost like there's an inverse relationship between access to fitness and access to pharmaceuticals and health. And that, that blew my mind. And so I recognized in the moment that I was a part of it. I owned at the time my third CrossFit affiliate. Okay. I was running a rehab clinic and I had one young daughter and another one on the way. And I had worked with Olympic medalists in my clinic and in my gym. I had worked with professional baseball players. I had worked with CrossFit Games athletes and CrossFit Games champions and thousands more people who are much more like you and me than them. Mm-hmm. Not to degrade your athletic prowess, Brendan. But, um, and I recognize that like, everybody needed something in between my clinic and my gym. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't providing it. And so that's when I felt uninspired by my practice, by my gym, and I left it to do what I do now with Active Life. Awesome. And if you... So active life, knowing that, I'll try to kind of hit the whole spectrum from big box to boutique to one-on-one to medical, where would active life fit in? It doesn't. Okay. And that's, that's my favorite thing and my least favorite thing about it. When, when I describe to people what active life is, the hard thing for me is I, I wasn't the best business person for a really long time. And so... If I saw a problem, I just propped up a department to solve for it. And by department, I mean I just started doing that too. Uh, And then hiring people to do it in my place. So it started off helping people get out of pain without going to the doctor or missing the gym from anywhere in the world. Uh We've done that for over 14,000 people. Then it became their coaches asking, hey, how do I solve for this problem? So we started developing coaches. Then it became gym owners saying, The coaches who you developed are making more money and getting better results than anybody else on our staff. Can you develop more of them? So we started helping gym owners build the systems and the development process to make sure that their staff were going to be the right kind of people serving the right kind of client. 
Then we saw that our staff was on, I mean, our clients, excuse me, were only able to go so far because fear and money, frankly, got in the way of them going 100% to what we believed was essential. So in January of this year, we opened our own flagship facility to prove that there's nothing to be afraid of. And in doing that, we now have four different avatar clients, which makes it really difficult to market the company or to say what it does, because the question has to be asked, which client are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, what active life does is it empowers a life of freedom without compromise, regardless of which of those four avatars you are. If you're an individual listening to this right now and you're dealing with aches, pains, frustration around not getting healthier or fit or not feeling like it's sustainable, we help you live a life of freedom without compromise through exercise, education, and mentorship online from anywhere in the world. If you're a coach, who is frustrated that you're not making enough money. You've been in the industry long enough that you know you're top 10%. You've been busting your ass to be top 10%. You make enough money to justify continuing to do it. But you look at your clients and you're like, man, the number of questions that they ask me that I don't know the answer to, that I have to refer out for, that I feel like I could solve if I knew how to do it, and I want to know how to do it. Uh, that's the coach that we help to become the top 1% so that they can earn financially freeing income doing work that's fulfilling, helping clients who are inspiring to them. Gym owners, I'm, I'm frankly advertising to significantly less because what I'm finding is we have a great group of gym owners we're supporting right now. And there are so many steps to help a gym owner be successful that somebody has to come along who is really mature as a person and a business owner who recognizes that there's going to be a financial regression early on to rebuild everything that they do to attract a different client and develop a different staff. Mm -hmm. It could be the same people, but they become different people by the time they're done. And I'm following your footsteps in some way, man. Like with the flagship, we've experienced so much success so quickly with so much fulfillment that our, our goals now are rooted in opening a thousand locations. Wow. We don't want to franchise them candidly. Okay. Uh, we want to own them, but that's, that's the roadmap. That's the North star. Yeah. And I think for the level of excellence that you guys are chasing, are chasing, I would say the corporate model is a much uh, corporately owned, I guess is what I'm mm -hmm. saying versus franchise is the way to go. As far as the arms of the business is the one, is there one that, you guys are leaning into more, you know, one of the things we both yes. came from that, sorry, and just finish here. Um, okay. The one, like both of us coming from the CrossFit world at some point, one of the things I thought early on was not so much the affiliate model, but CrossFit being an education company. Um, mm -hmm. Is that the arm that you're chasing the most? Is it the the standalone units is, is there one like the active life professional? Do you see educating those people in a specific way being the biggest driver or is it the standalone units or is it both? The bottleneck is the, is the staff. Okay. So the bottleneck is having enough developed people who can serve the client who's going to walk into an active life flagship. So our incremental step one is to put the pedal to the floor to develop the top 10% coach in the world to become the top 1%. Nice. I'm looking for the top 10% coach in the world who says, I want to make mentoring and coaching 
other people who need help that most other coaches aren't even considering trying to give my career. I'm looking for those people because we need to develop 25,000 of them. Wow. That's, that's the number that we've landed on in order to be able to fill our 1,000 locations in the next 10 years by the time that we get there. The reality is we're not going to be able to hire all of them and not all of them are going to want to be hired. Okay. One of the problems that we run into right now is when we develop a coach, we can't afford to pay them as much as they're already making entrepreneurially by the time that we're ready to bring them in. And that's a good thing. It means the stuff works. And it's a bad thing because it means it's harder for us to hire. Um, and, it, you know, there's some people who are meant to be entrepreneurs. There's some people who are meant to be intrapreneurs. Yeah. We're looking for the ones – we're looking for both to develop – we're looking for the entrepreneurs to hire and the entrepreneurs to, to set free and then refer clients to, frankly. Um, out of that goal of 25,000 um, active life professionals, do we have a number of where we are today? Yes. we're. Um, to give you an exact number, I would have to ask our admin team. Okay. We're somewhere between uh, 350 and 450. Okay. I love I love the tenacity and big goals, uh, which a lot of this podcast is going to be about. Let me um, pivot, but use what you are trying to develop and kind of poke fun at my own area of expertise in the boutique fitness industry. And even though I think, you know, us at Metabolic do things very unique from uh, on ramping of a coach and getting them on the floor. In general, and I, and I and I love hearing this, and I and I, and I want you to be uh, brutally honest. Like, what as a blanket statement, um, what are we doing wrong, or what could we be doing better in the boutique industry, in your opinion? Um, this is going to sound like I'm placating, and I'm not. Okay, uh, we can't group the the boutique fitness industry as as a unit mm-hmm. because I think that what what I love about metabolic is you know who you serve and you don't pretend to be a, uh, a jack of all trades and a master of none. You guys want hard chargers who want to be great, not late, who want a professional environment in which they're going to get the same consistent, repeatable, safe, strength-based fitness model. They're going to be in a room with people who they respect and would want to go grab drinks with afterwards. And that's who you look to bring in. And I love that because you're not saying, hey, are you 400 pounds and need to start your life over? Come to Metabolic. You know that that's not what you're built to do consistently. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't want your gyms full of that. I wish... Boutique fitness in general had more self-awareness and identified who the avatar client that they feel most compelled and prepared to serve was. And then stop marketing to everybody else and stop pretending that you can serve everybody else. Amen. Go deep, not wide. No, I agree. Like I'm, I don't care what niche you take go all in. I mean, the program for everyone does not exist. And I hate, 
the position that, like you said, from a marketing angle, us saying that anyone, not only like not us, anyone saying that we are for everyone and can train everyone, I think is a pretty uh, ignorant and dangerous state uh, statement. So, yeah, I 100% agree, and I appreciate um, the kind words towards uh, Metabolic. Um, but yeah, um, well, I want I, I want to add to that. Then I, I don't share kind words when I don't mean them. Okay. Anybody who knows anything about me knows I'm going to be honest with you and sometimes to a fault. And, you know, I I have this conversation with people at CrossFit all the time and it's the opposite. I tell them, I'm like, you, you guys have perhaps the most innovative fitness methodology of the last 50 years in terms of what it's inspired thereafter. Um, And they're squandering it. Because the reason that I got excited for something like CrossFit and opened three affiliates is because it was forging elite fitness. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be for special forces and cops and badasses. And I was like, cool, I want to own that. And I'm going to go find the most badass people in my town and make them even more badass. Now it's like, are you 93 years old? Are you dealing with Parkinson's? Are you recovering from cancer? Like, guys, (laughs) You took your eyes off the ball and, and, and they want to be all things to all people now. And I think that that's just a microcosm for the whole industry. Yeah. And I, and I hope, and I, I don't want to get into this cause we'll just spend too much time talking about it, but the debate on the raising of the affiliation fees, I'm wondering in my head, is this a strategy to cut the fat, consolidate and get back to our original set of core values? I think that would serve them well, but I think I don't that's, think it is. you don't. And okay. I, I'll tell you really quickly, and then we can certainly move on. Yeah. Um, if it were, they would be out in front of it. Yeah, it's $4,500 now. Look, if you're not professional enough to recognize the value that we've brought to you over the last 11 years since we raised rates last, then we don't want you to be a CrossFit affiliate. Mm-hmm. That's what they would be doing if this was about trimming the fat. But they haven't said a fucking word. Not one. So I don't think it's that. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm torn. I'm torn. I, I agree with the, the raise and rates. I was just that original hundred words of who it was built for. when you talked about these special forces and these badasses, I mm-hmm. personally think it would serve them well to go back in that direction and then maybe just focus on being an education component to the rest of the world. But Hey, uh, we'll just see. Ha- have to see how that plays out. But here, I'd like enough about our our careers because you know I joked with you before the podcast. Like this was never my intention with with this kind of personal personal passion project. I wanted to talk to the entrepreneur's mindset, um, kind of the DNA, the difference of opinions, the grind. That's that's what lights me up, and I think that's what my listeners appreciate it. So. You know, with that, I'd love to, I'd love to highlight um, a LinkedIn post that you made recently. It was the one that I started the podcast with. Um, I'm going to call it "You're Going to Get Me," uh, kind of your pledge. Um, there's a quote in there. I think is right near the very end that says, "From here forward, you're getting me, not the polished me, my opinions, my questions, my innovations." my mistakes, me, 
Um, so the audience listening now is obviously aware of this post. They heard it at the beginning. And because of that, they're forced to internalize it. Um, in my opinion, you've stated what a lot of creators and entrepreneurs feel, but most are just unwilling to say out loud. And to me, that's fucking beautiful. So let's discuss what, what drove you to make this post at this time in your life? I was reworking the core values for active life because when I wrote the core values and the mission statement for active life, uh, I did so with a bunch of team members who I've since seen out. Uh, they weren't actually aligned with the values that we wrote or with the mission statement that we created at the time. And what I realized was um, it sounded like we sent it to HR for approval, who then sent it to the DEI committee, who then came back and said, change this, this, and this. And then we were like, oh, okay. Is this okay? Yes, that's okay. Great. There's your mission statement and there's your core values. And that's not me. Mm-hmm. And what I realized in evaluating all of that is I love, genuinely love, many of the team members at Active Life. When I say many and not all, it's simply because I haven't spent enough time with all of them. We have a group of dedicated people who all could make more money doing something else, but they believe vehemently in our mission and they're inspired to be on a team with other people who challenge them. And I, I love that. And I wanted our mission statement and our core values to better reflect it. And as I started doing that, I, re- I started recognizing my corporate language everywhere else. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> what? Why? Like LinkedIn to me, for those of you who are not on LinkedIn, it, all social media feels like you have to be on it. That's what the world feels like today. I have to be on it. But let me tell you, if I didn't feel like I had to be on it, I wouldn't be. LinkedIn to me feels like an elephant walk. I've never done one, but if you don't know what an elephant walk is, it's when a bunch of guys line up and they stick their thumbs up each other's asses and then just walk. You put you, you put your thumb in the ass of the guy in front of you and you grab the penis of the guy behind you and, and you walk. That's what LinkedIn feels like. It's like, oh, this company got a valuation of this. What do you think? Is it the next great? Shut up. What result is it getting for people? Like it's 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 this it's it's an entirely speculative universe of people who fantasize about their business becoming some kind of a unicorn for the sake of profits and money and shareholders and clout and accolade. And I'm like, do something of value. Do something of value. What what I my ambition is not even that Active Life has this massive success for the sake of Active Life. It's that people look back 50 years from now and they're like, how is it that active life in a time period when the rest of the world was leaning heavily into AI and replacing people, how did active life cut through it by leaning on its people? How did that happen? Let's study them. I would say I'm waiting for the Harvard study of active life, but Harvard's become a sham too. So, I want people to look at how we revealed the exceptional in everybody who we came across and built a mega business that changed the world as a result of the people who collaborated on it. 
And LinkedIn just isn't the place right now where that's interesting to people. It's someone who's afraid that their boss is going to see that they agree with it. It's someone who's afraid that their shareholders are, are going to see and they're not going to want their money to be in it because profits might not be as much as they otherwise would be. It's everybody on there patting themselves on the back. Today, I walked into an elevator and the numbers were lit up and it inspired me to think about the lights in my life. <laughs> Shut up. So I just wanted to make sure everybody on there knew I'm not your guy for that. And That's it, what inspired that post. And man, it's refreshing. Um, I really enjoy the content you are putting out there. And I feel like there was like a tipping point. I, I saw the content getting more honest and more direct uh, weeks and months leading up to that big pledge. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, and everything coming past it. Um, I, I love where you're going with it. It's kind of funny too. So like when I listen to your emotionally and passionate, uh, passionately charged voice, you know, I could, I imagine some things have been said to myself and I wanted to kind of think, uh, I wanted to ask your thoughts on ego um, in general. Some would would hear your content or, or sorry, read your content or listen to your podcast and, and, and say, this is a position that comes from ego. Um, I'm okay saying that I think you do have an ego, Sean. I know I have an ego and, um, but is that so bad? In my opinion, and an ego in check is very powerful and ego moves the needle. So just, not so much a question, but your thoughts on ego in general in the entrepreneur's mindset. Well, ego is there. Everybody has ego. It's a question about how it comes out. And without ego, we're like, I'm, we're, we're all monks. I don't see any, I don't see any monks walking around my town. And what I think happens is generally speaking, people conflate self-esteem with ego mm. and they, they identify ego as a negative and self-esteem isn't even a term that's coming across their minds. To me, egotistical is the word that people mean to use. Mm-hmm. And that word, I would say, uh, I'm not. Because an egotistical person is a person who's going to run into trouble because they're looking to convince not to learn. So when, when I go into a debate, an argument, a conversation with somebody who disagrees with me, which, by the way, is one of my favorite things in the world to do, I'm going into that conversation with the expressed intent of learning from that person. I want to better understand their position. I want to gain more empathy for them. I want to be able to better articulate my message. And that means better understanding my message. Sometimes I go into those conversations and it moves me. It changes my position because I'm not there to win. I'm there to learn. The egotistical person is there to win. It's let me refute all of the points that you make regardless of the merit of them because I need to win. That's egotistical. Self-esteem, which is what I believe, again, people are conflating ego with, is walking into that meeting knowing the best thing that could possibly happen here is I recognize I was wrong about everything mm-hmm. and change my mind. I'm there for that. I'm looking for that. And the only reason I can do that is because I have a borderline 
unreasonable amount of self-esteem. My parents growing up told me I could do anything I put my mind to, and I was foolish enough to believe them. And, and I'm still in that mode. So when, when somebody points something out about me that is, quote, bad or needs to improve, good. Thank you. There, there is no, there's no beating me down because you found something I need to get better at. You just helped me. So I think that unfortunately, and I, you know, it's funny. I remember actually, I remember vividly when I was a child going to the Little League baseball end of year breakfast and lined up on the table in the front of the room were hundreds of trophies that were, you know, they're all plastic, but these were the little black trophies with a, a, a plastic gold guy on top. So we're going to baseball that. Mm -hmm. And then there were dozens of big blue ones, which were for, which were different, right? I'll get to it in a second. And then there was one that was really big. The little black ones were participation trophies. Everybody got one. The blue ones were for the all-stars. Only a few dozen guys across, you know, whatever, five grades of school got those. And then for each league, there was one big one. That was for the champion. Every year I would get the participation trophy, and then I was, I was in a good position. I was a good athlete. I got the all-star trophy too. And when we would get home, I would the, the participation trophy didn't even make it to my house. I threw it in the trash on my way out of the building. <laughs> and I remember one time my, my father asked me, why did you throw that out? I was like, because I, I didn't earn it. It didn't feel like anything. It was, it was like, what, what are you giving me this for? And I, I can't help but reflect on that. And by the way, the thing, the only one I really wanted was the championship. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's Little League. What are we talking about? I'm, 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 I'm a Jewish white kid from suburban Long Island. We're talking about Little League. <laughs> But the point is, I never felt any gratification from just showing up. Nice. Winning was what it was about. Nice. And I believe that today we are suffering the consequences of a participation trophy generation. You're great. No, you're not. Your best is all that you can give. No, it's not. You can get better. You know, that's one of my favorite quote, by the way, in a movie of all time is Sean Connery and The Rock. You ever seen that movie? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. When, when, Nicolas, Cage, when, when Nicolas Cage says, I'm doing my best, and he says, your best, losers whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. That's, <laughs> now that's I do remember favorite, it. <laughs> it's my favorite movie line of all time. But I say all of that because people will say, like, I've, I get it. People, oh, Sean's got a big ego. No, Sean's got big ambition and self-esteem. And, and I want to be wrong, and I want to get better. Yeah, and I would argue um, 25,000 coaches and 1,000 uh, brick and mortar, um, you're going to need a little bit of ego, self-esteem uh, to get there. So I'm all good with that. I appreciate the honesty there. I want to use the participation trophy angle into another piece of content you put out there. Like I said, over the past couple months, your pivot, and the honesty coming out of it, um, this kind of like work-life balance debate. Um, 
in in 2015, I think it was, I think it was 2015. I was lucky enough to present at TEDx Charlotte, um, and I spoke about this same idea: balance as a career choice versus exhausting <clears throat> your true potential. Um, specific to your podcast titled "Balance Is Only Found Doing World Class Work," um, my three favorite quotes from this podcast kind of jumbled together. I go something like this. Uh, Balance is nonsense. What balance means is fulfillment. Uh, The term work-life balance is more of a crutch for laziness than a quest for world-class. Balance comes through world-class work. And when your life is in balance, you don't really need to think about balancing your life. So talk to me about fulfillment versus balance. The only people I hear talking about life being out of balance are people who are in a moment of their life where they're unclear on their purpose. I've never heard someone who is just insanely obsessed with what they're doing say, I need more balance. I've I've never heard it, man. Uh What I hear and, and by the way, to the, to the person who would be skeptical of that or cynical of what I'm describing then, I am obsessed, obsessed with what I do for work. And the thing that makes me most proud has nothing to do with my work. It's when I meet new people and they say to me after or during, I really admire what, it, what you have with your wife. I'm like, thank you. Mm-hmm. What, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I noticed the way that you guys look at each other, the way that you respect her, the way that she respects you, the way you support each other. It's obvious when you're together that you guys really love each other and that you really have each other's backs. That's what I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. So it's not that being obsessed at work means that you're absent at life. It means that you're 100% where your feet are, always. And when I leave the office sometimes, I left the office yesterday an hour and a half before the end of my workday because I had nothing left to do yesterday and I wasn't inspired. I wasn't in the, there was nothing happening. I had to force something to stay longer. Mm-hmm. So I left and I went home and started cooking dinner for my family and for guests that we had in town last night. That balance. It's not about like... I'm in pursuit of something extremely difficult that I think requires world-class work to accomplish, even to try. And I left work early yesterday, not because I had to, not because I scheduled it, but because there was nothing left to do at work yesterday. Mm-hmm. That's, that's balance, man. Once I got home, I wasn't thinking about work anymore. When I was at work, I wasn't thinking about home. But throughout the day, I get, I don't know how many missed calls and text messages because my phone's on do not disturb. I don't want to hear from you during the day. I'm not looking for a distraction. I'm in it. And that takes a lot of communication for sure between my wife and me. Sure. But I remember feeling burnt out working 17, 18 hour days for years and not making any success. And in that period of my life, I was craving balance and I didn't know how to find it. And what I realized in hindsight, looking back at that, 
is that the reason I was looking for balance is because I wasn't being productive in my work. And the reason I wasn't being productive in my work is because my work didn't have a very clear vision and purpose that I was pursuing. Mm -hmm. And the lack of vision and purpose led to just busy work. It's, it's a misunderstanding that work-life balance happens as a result of planning or like some hard and fast rules about how much you work and how much you life. Work-life balance comes from pursuing being a world-class person, which is not a light switch that you turn on and turn off depending on where you are. It's my friend Jay Ferrugia talks about this really, really well. He says, I manipulate, I think manipulate was his word. I don't want to put one in his mouth. It sounds bad though. Sure. His thing was, I change my re I change reality everywhere I go. That guy over there who you said is negative, he's not negative around me. That person who you said complains about his wife doesn't complain about his wife around me. That person who never works out works out when they're with me. That person who says he's always on their phone, they're never on their phone with me. That's a world-class person. It influences everyone around them to be better when they're around them. Yeah. You don't get to do that if you just turn it on for work and turn it off when you're at home or turn it on at home and turn it off when you're at work. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And the second part of this rant within the podcast is is kind of what you're framing here, and it's the importance of being present. Um, specific to your role as creator, business owner, husband, father, you, you've mentioned all these things. You made a powerful statement noting um, that work-life balance does not come from splitting your time evenly. Um mm -hmm. And you know what? A lot of people are going to challenge this, right? Which, which I'm. This is this is my favorite. This is what I've been most excited to talk about. Um, instead, you preach how being present is more important than just being there. Um, can you kind of dive into that thought? Because I absolutely love it. Yeah. the The reason. So, so I put my priorities in the following order. Me. And my physical and mental health is one. My marriage is two. My kids, my parenting responsibilities is three. My work is four. The reason why they go in that order is I need to be the best version of me I possibly can be so that I can make better everybody else around me. Uh -huh. The reason my marriage comes before my kids is because I want my kids to see the way that my wife and I have a marriage so that they can only accept what we have as their minimum standard of how people treat them. Forget about their marriage and what they do when they grow up with how they, who they have sex with and who they decide to get hinged to if they do. People around them in their life. I want them to, to be people who refuse to accept anything less than the way that their dad treats their mom. Mm -hmm. And the reason the business comes after that is because the only thing that would take my eye off of the business would be a problem in one of those three. So those things need to be found. Now, some people would say, you need to spend a, a lot more time with your kids, Sean. Mm -hmm. You won't, like, I, I, I wake up at five. I go work out. I come home by six, no, by 7.30, the latest, Okay. My kids are typically downstairs before their workday starts. My wife is still sleeping or upstairs getting ready for the day. 
I go snuggle with my kids on the couch for about 25, 30 minutes until eight, a little bit before eight. Then I go start making breakfast for everybody. Then I go upstairs and I take a shower. I get dressed. I go to the office. I walk to work. So in the morning, you're looking at 30 to 45 minutes with my kids, total time. Mm -hmm. I'm not on my cell phone. Right? I'm not watching a show. I'm not typing emails. I'm with my kids for 30 to 45 minutes in the morning. Success for me, a successful day, is I am home by 5.30 with my phone in a drawer, not out. Nice. Which means I'm present at home. Now, here's the thing. I'm not always successful during the day, Brendan. <laughs> there are days that I have to stay at the office later than that because I didn't get done what I said I would get done in time. I lost that day. You don't win every game. But success for me is being home at 5.30, present. I cook dinner. We sit at the kitchen table and we eat as a family by 6.15. Then I'm helping the kids down to bed and they're all in their beds, ideally asleep, but probably one of them complaining about something in the hallway when they should be in bed by 7.30. So when you add all of that up, let's just lowball it. 30 minutes in the morning and then... Let's say cooking time, they're in the room, but I'm not present with them because I'm doing something else. 6.15 to 7.30. So an hour and 15 in the evening, 30 in the morning. It's an hour and 45 minutes every day of 100% presence with my kids. On the weekends, it's all day, both days, unless I'm traveling. I would challenge the parents who would judge me to measure the amount of time that they're spending with their kids without their phone without an email, without a movie on. And then throw your arrows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like this was one of the things and and the, the one thing that you were the first person that I kind of ever heard this out loud. I haven't said it publicly, but I've, you know, said it in confidence with close friends and how you sometimes find yourself out of balance on weekends and, Mm-hmm. You know, even um, that, you know, shuttling from birthday party to birthday party doesn't exactly always light you up. And, a lot, you know, for probably the toughest one for a lot of people to digest is how sometimes doing things as a family does not always fulfill you. Like, fucking bold, bold, my friend. Um, and again, things that I think a lot of people feel but, you know, don't say out loud. Um, but, you know, as a creator... Um, I can truly relate. Example, <clears throat> like I love watching my two sons play their sports. I love watching them in their element. I love seeing the, you know, that pure joy in their smile. Um, I love watching them thrive. I'm okay seeing them fall. Um, I like watching them compete and the lessons that sports expose them to. But all the nuances, the time commitment, the participation trophies and the politics around their sports, you know, like I don't fucking like it half the time. I really don't. Um, Mm -hmm. So for me, like in my own words, I can only do it one way. I have to compartmentalize Um, when I'm working. I work when I'm at home. I'm at home when I'm working. I want no outside distractions and I need to build systems and strategies to free me from those distractions. And when I'm home, I need to force constraints on myself. Like you said, phone is out of reach. 
Do Not Disturb kicks in at 8 p.m. on weekdays. Do Not Disturb is on throughout the weekend. Otherwise, my brain just wants to create always. A few other things. I use that daily commute to kind of flip the switch. Um, I use the drive-in to flip into business mode, and I use the drive-home to transition into partner and into dad. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, quick personal story. I think you may appreciate this. I once worked with a therapist when I was coming through divorce. Uh, In a way, divorce is a failure, right? So like like all failures, you can learn from them. He had a background in sports psychology, which I think is why... For my wiring, the work was so impactful. He was um, he was stationed in China, working with the U.S. military and their soldiers, and we worked together over Zoom for about six months. And the most impactful thing he taught me was that you can approach any environment from two viewpoints, love or logic. <clears throat> and he helped me realize that I approach everything or had approached everything in life from a position of logic. And... Mm-hmm. He explained how that allowed me to excel as a professional athlete and showed the power for it as an entrepreneur and uh, one of the leaders um, in my company. But he also helped me understand its limitations when it came to relationships. Um, So logic, how would I say that? Logic kind of requires removing emotion and love often requires removing logic. Uh, So he gave me a simple strategy that I still try to apply today. Uh, During my nine to five, I lead with logic. And when I get home and in relationships, I lead with love. So it's been pretty powerful to say the least. And as you can see, this is why compartmentalization is necessary for me. It allows me to allows me to go all in on that one specific commitment at that time. So my partner, JJ, she receives all of me. My kids, they get their dad, not just their father. And uh, my company gets my commitment to excellence. I'm just not wired for the in-between. So, you know, I get what you're saying. Like, love allows me to enjoy that carpool lane. Uh, logic doesn't, if that makes sense. Uh, your take? Uh, I would love to push you a little bit on it. Yeah, let's I, do it. I, had a, I, I got a similar lesson from a mentor. And what he told me, when I hired, so I hired this guy to help me because I was really at my wit's end. Right? I was doing the 17-hour days. I was clearing about $30,000 a year as a doctor, a gym owner, and an event planner at the same time. <laughs> that wasn't exactly the life I had driven up for myself. I had previously turned down millions of dollars working in finance in Hong Kong for a bank that my uncle was the CEO of. Ouch. It never hurt me. Okay. I, I, I do have... Uh, Kyle Wool, if you're listening, unlikely, but if you're listening, I do have a memory seared into my brain of Kyle Wool, the managing director who worked for my uncle, telling me when I turned down the job offer he made, never let your best year in business be my worst month in business. Mm. And that is seared into my brain. And don't worry, I won't, Kyle. <laughs> but, but when I hired that mentor, uh, I needed change, like radical change. And he told me, if you want to be better at business, you need to become a better person. And I told him, I I think I'm a good person, man. I treat everybody the way I want to be treated. And he said, I know you do, and I do admire that about you. The problem is, you're a fucking psychopath. (laughs) 
<laughs> and most people don't want to be treated like a fucking psychopath does. So your responsibility is to treat people differently. I said, how do I treat people then? He said, you treat people how they want to be treated. I said, how do I know how they want to be treated? He said, you ask. I said, how do I ask somebody how they want to be treated? He said, now you're asking better questions. You're on your way. That was the first year I ever cleared $100,000 in business. And I was able to shrink my schedule from 17-hour days to about 10-hour days in the same year. And one of the ways he taught me to understand how people want to be treated was he drew two axes, an x-axis and a y-axis. And the x-axis was the speed with which people make decisions. So effectively, how much information do they need to make a decision? A lot of information is all the way on the left, a little bit of information is all the way on the right. Then the y-axis, the up and down, at the top was logic and at the bottom was emotion. He said, everybody lives somewhere in these four quadrants. And based on what they learn and what they experience, they will move within the diagram. If you speak to somebody who is emotionally oriented with logic, they won't get it. So you need to be able to identify who's emotionally oriented and then change your delivery to reflect the way that somebody who's looking for something emotional would want to hear it. And I spent, let's see, that was 2015, 16. I spent about, I'm still doing it, man. But I spent six to seven years trying to figure out how to do that and getting better and better and better and better. Like it's to the point now that what he, what he explained to me that really shook me up was, Sean, it would, I would have to punch you or somebody in your family in the face to get you angry. For some people, there's anxiety in having to say the word no. I'm like, how could you be afraid to say the word no? He's like, that's exactly right. You can't relate. You have to learn how to relate to that person. That was a big, hard lesson. So I spent all of these years effectively learning. There's a stimulus, a gap, and a response. And I have to spend the time in that gap to figure out how I want to respond. When you saw that post come out from me on LinkedIn, what happened was I had the revelation that I've worked hard enough on what I would say, that what I would say will be aligned with what I would want to say without spending a lot of time in that gap because I've done the work. The same way that you played hockey and you probably drilled the same shot, the same, you know, whatever, sure. over and over and over and over again cognitively until it became subconscious and you could do it without thinking and it happened on the ice out of nowhere, right? Uh -huh. In a game. Uh -huh. That's how I communicate now. So I can stop being so cognitive when I speak. And if somebody, like now you're getting the best version of me that I know how to be and I'm conscious about it. Where previously you were getting the best version of me I knew how to be and I was unconscious about it. So the point I'm making to you here is I also am driven by logic. And when I'm speaking to somebody who's driven by emotion, and there are people like that in both of our businesses, I have to put on my emotional communication hat and find a way to connect with them that will inspire them to take the action that needs to be taken. That's, that's the push I would give you. Well, 
And that's why I wanted to do this podcast. So I really <laughs> appreciate it. And what I what I love is the um, the tenacity to improve. Um, we probably it's funny we 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 run in the same circles of influence and circles of debate. So it's 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 just refreshing to watch that tenacity to what's your words do something big or only do something big you're always trying to improve yourself um i can tell you i think you're pushing people from afar even though i agree with almost everything you said on linkedin um it is a funny place to be but it's part of the game i hate to admit to that um but having a refreshing voice um on linkedin is 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 great and i appreciate it i know you have uh, a hard stop here because you have your own podcast that I'll look forward well, to I, listening I, to. Go ahead. I want I want to add to that for a moment yeah. if it's okay with you. Yeah, it's okay that some of the things that exist that I don't like or that you don't like exist. Mm-hmm. It's like Mike Tyson talks about discipline is doing the things that you hate like you love them, and I think discipline is actually a result of having a purpose that is inspiring and a plan that is likely to lead to the result you want from that purpose. Uh, and then discipline just happens because it's, it's more worth doing the thing that you hate, like you love it, than it is to not get the results of the thing that you really want to have. Mm-hmm. Now, people should know. And I, I hope that this stands as an example of, I don't even know what, but um, I guess what social, what, what life could be like if people would just adopt this mindset. I pitched you four years ago mm-hmm. on collaborating with Active Life through Metabolic. You said no because it didn't fit the business model for Metabolic. You were right, and I didn't get angry, and we still talk, and now we're here on a podcast, yeah. and I'm not pitching you. And I think that people too often these days think that they have a solution for everybody. And then get angry when somebody doesn't see it. And then it's, they move on so quickly. Like that person's not important anymore. And I experienced a microcosm of this while I was in California last week. I'm walking on the Santa Monica Pier and this guy walks over to me and he says, hey, would you support my music? And he puts out a, like a, one of those cardboard one pagers, you know, like the thing you could buy in Vistaprint. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sure, gives me the thing. And I'm looking at it and I'm starting to walk away. And he goes, yo, would you throw me a tip for that? My first thought was, what the fuck are you talking about? Why do I throw you a tip for giving me a postcard about your music? And, and, I, and I, said, I said, no, but I'll listen to it. And then he took the postcard back and went and talked to the next person. Oh, man. You say, oh, man. And I felt the same way. And I laughed when he did it because I realized that is how people do business. They just do it with a smile on online. Uh. Yeah. Hey, you know, really hope to catch up with you in the future. No, you don't. No, you don't. You you will forget my name before you hang up the phone and you'll call the next person. And it's because we're too focused societally and corporately on the, the top line and the bottom line. And we're not focused at all on the lines in between that end up making up the two that we're looking at. 
And if we can stop doing that, start building relationships without expectation for getting anything in return for them, we will all get more than we ever imagined. That's okay. what I hope people leave this podcast with. I love it. We'll leave it there. In the words of Dr. Sean Pastuch, if you're chasing balance, do something hard. Thank you for your time today, Sean. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Brandon.